Hi, and welcome to a Dad's Path podcast. We're real dads solving everyday problems. Each week we tackle issues that dads everywhere face and deliver actions you can take right away. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode and go to adadspath.com to get our free newsletter exclusively for dads. Our goal is to help you make fatherhood count. Dad on. Hello and welcome to another episode of a Dad's Path podcast. I'm Will Bronstein. Today we're speaking with Rich Slatcher, who runs the Close Relationship Laboratory at the University of Georgia. The Close Relationship Lab explores the science of relationships. So today we're going to dive in on relationships as a dad, marriage, and more. Welcome, Rich. Oh, it's great to be here, Will. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot for coming. And um, you can check out Rich's work at richslatcher.com. That's R-I-C-H-S-L-A-T-C-H-E-R.com. So we'll say that at the, end of the end. And it's also in the show notes. And we want to start, though, with a study that you've been working on. I think an overview just came out on the effect of COVID on people's social relationships. I think the website was lovingthetimeofcovid.me. It sounds really interesting. Can you talk about that for us a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. My background is uh, in the science of relationships. I teach classes on relationships and have been doing research in this area for, um, I guess, better part of 20 years now. And so when March of 2020 came, we had a few in-person psychology research studies going on. And then when COVID hit, of course, everything totally shut down. Like many others, I was spending a lot of time online on Twitter, and there were a lot of uh, psychology professors that were, you know, posting things about like, what are we going to do now? And I think, you know, a good number of people thought that this wasn't going to last that long. But I had a sense. My wife had been very closely following everything since like January or December of even the previous year, but but closely for a couple months. She convinced me that it was going to be a while. So when I saw a tweet from a grad student in the Netherlands named Julia Zappalat, who was interested in doing a study on relationships during COVID. I replied to that tweet, as did another colleague who I know, Rhonda Balzarini. And we had a meeting set up that week. Two weeks later, we had a website, had all of the surveys in place for what we wanted to uh, measure. And the idea was and is to just really see how the pandemic has impacted people's relationships, but also generally just how happy and healthy they are. So we're looking at you know a variety of factors associated with happiness and success of people's relationships. And it's grown to be a bigger project than we initially thought. We've had, I think, 13 waves of data collection at this point. The survey is about 10 or 15 minutes. We had 5,000 in the very beginning and now have a core group of about five or 600 that have stayed with us for the whole study, which is pretty neat. And we're you know, trying to answer lots of questions. One of the more fun new questions that we're asking deals with how pets are impacting or impacted us during the pandemic. You know, how a lot of people talked about on social media, just how they got a dog or they got a cat or whatever, and just how helpful it's been to have pets during the pandemic. So we have these collaborators that have just heard about the study. I've given academic talks on this project and people have really made the data very easily accessible to people, to other researchers. And so a lot of other people have come in and are now analyzing the data, which is fun. That's one of the pet project is one of those. So yeah, it's been a great way to 
for me personally to really find meaning during the pandemic um, when we were spending a lot of time at home and it was fun to work with people who I'd never worked with before and, and connect with them. And yeah, it's, it's been great. And we were one of the first studies to get up and running. So I think that was helpful too. And as you just said, we, the most recent paper we just came out with is a big review of all the research that's been done so far on relationships during COVID. Yeah, what? Well, give us the secret. So, what? <laughs> what, what did you find from um, the overview? I mean, what, or from all the studies? What are some of the findings? Um, maybe starting there. So, I'll tell you some interesting counterintuitive findings. So, couples spent inordinate amounts of time together, especially for the first six to twelve months of the pandemic. And so, we asked the research question: To what extent is spending all of this extra time together? good or bad for relationships. And when I usually ask friends about this and I ask, you know, do you think that all that time people spent together led people to, for example, be more or less bored in their relationship? Almost universal response is, well, probably more bored because they're just spending all this time together. They're sick of each other, right? Well, what we found was actually quite the opposite. The more time people were spending together with their partners the less bored they were in their relationship. And that was driven by people having time to explore new things together. So they would bake together, or they would go on walks together, go on hikes together, cook together. And so that was kind of a fun finding and I guess encouraging. One of the things that we found in the, in the early days of the pandemic, the first few months, and a lot of our focus has been on those first few months, because I think in some ways they're the most interesting because there's so much uncertainty and, and the novelty of it all and everything, was that people who were writing about their relationship, those people who had romantic partners, whether they be married or dating, we asked them to write about that for a few minutes just to tell us, how's your relationship doing? And one of the most common responses was, I feel guilty saying this, but things are going great for me right now because I'm getting to spend a lot of quality time with my partner. You know, people whose spouses maybe had worked a ton before the pandemic were at the office a lot. They were getting a chance to spend more time with. And people had to, by virtue of social distancing, prune most of their social lives. So you have this time that people got together that really was good for a lot of couples. Now, of course, it wasn't good for everybody. You know, one of the things we found was that if your relationship was on the rocks going into the pandemic, by and large, it was very likely to just get worse. We've all heard that people with young kids struggled the most. People that have kids, you know, is the ones with, with young kids that really struggle the most because of difficulty with daycare and just the perils of online learning. But outside of that group, we were surprised that, that a lot of people were doing pretty well. Uh, during the pandemic in terms of their relationships. Yeah, that's really a positive finding, like you said, pretty encouraging. And, you know, I think it goes both ways. You know, the spouses who are working a lot are now saying, wow, that, that was actually a positive experience. I need to find better work-life balance. And that's maybe why we're seeing, you know, more of the uh, push towards remote work or the hybrid environment anyway. And um, yeah, as you said, I mean, there's a big push or there's a lot more time you're spending with your partner or your spouse because you're not going out, especially the first part of the pandemic. So friendships, I think, tended to you know, take more work to keep going. And I certainly had some challenges there. Did you have any findings you know, from your study on friendships? We did. 
those people who were able to figure out how to navigate social distancing well, you know, in Georgia and Colorado, I imagine it was a little bit easier because we have fairly mild climates to do outside things. But those people who were able to spend more time with friends in person really benefited from that. They had, you know, when we followed up with them a couple of months later, they were doing much better than those people who weren't spending time with friends. We looked at one of the big things that we've looked at has been Zoom, which, you know, never thought I would study that before the pandemic. And that's been pretty interesting too. Our initial findings were that Zooming with family seemed to be more beneficial for people's well-being than Zooming with friends, perhaps because people hadn't been in as close contact with family as they were during the pandemic. And by and large, people focused on their closest relationships when they were uh, doing Zoom. The other thing we found was that smaller Zoom calls of with one or two other people were much more promoting of social connection than larger Zoom calls. And in fact, extroverts especially seemed to dislike the larger Zoom calls. And we found that that was because they're not able to talk <laughs> and they're not able to be responded to. Those two things are, are two really key ingredients to building social connection, what we call self-disclosure and responsiveness, partner responsiveness. And so in a big Zoom call, you just can't have that. You don't have the social cues that you can pick up on that people are actually paying attention to you. Whereas in a one-on-one -on -one video call like we're having here, it's much easier to pick up on people's social cues. Even when we can't look each other exactly in the eye, I can tell you're paying attention actively. And that's led to some other experiments that we're doing now in with my graduate students, uh, looking at the effects of Zoom. And we did a study of daily life that we're analyzing the data now for um, winter of uh, 2021, you know, basically six months or so after the pandemic started, where we had people, uh, we asked them uh, what they were doing throughout the day and you know, if they were Zooming or, or with people in person. And in Georgia, we had a lot of people by that time that were spending a lot of time in person with other people. So we, we had pretty good variability in that. So yeah, it's opened up a whole new realm of research questions for us. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Zoom to me was a lifesaver. I mean, in a lot of ways, being able to connect with friends that I actually wouldn't normally see, that was also interesting, you know, is sometimes the, the friends I would normally get a drink with, but then it was also friends from college or friends in the past, you know, revisiting that. And the one challenge I've found since then, though, I'll tell you is, before COVID, I think we had more sort of happenstance or random phone calls. You know, a friend would call me, I'd call them. Whereas with Zoom, you know, it's much more scheduled. So even though we're not doing the scheduled Zooms anymore, I think we just need to get used to going back to uh, the more regular but not planned calls. Yeah, there's going to be a transition for a while. I mean, yeah, I think depending upon what part of the country you're in, you still feel more or less like you're still in the pandemic here in Georgia and in the South. A lot of people have been, for the most part, living their lives as they used to. But um, we have several friends and family in uh, in California, and it's quite different there. Yeah, no, it's like you said, a lot of variability around the country here. And regardless, we're all trying to keep our friendships and build them. And you know, the other challenge I think that I found was I had some new friendships that you know felt like they could become real friendships. But then when COVID hit, it was this isn't someone I can really Zoom with, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. 
We faced that, my kids, because we moved here to Athens, Georgia, in uh, the fall of 2019. Wow. And so they were just getting friendships going by March, and then everything shut down. So, you know, my kids ended up spending more time connecting with old friends back in, in Michigan. And it wasn't until they resumed school in the fall in person that fall of, of 2020, which I feel fortunate they were able to swing it with mask protocol and stuff that they really were able to, to form those connections. So you're right. For the newer friendships, they were either put on hold or or maybe, you know, even never came back uh, after the pandemic. Yeah. And if we take a step back from COVID, but just focus on relationships and friendships, you know, I think I have some very close friends from growing up. I'm fortunate in that way. A, a close one from growing up here in Denver, I can still hang out with and his kid. And then I also have friendships that I've sort of fallen into, you know, through my kids' friends. And some of those, especially at first, didn't work out. And it wasn't because of me or them. They're just not really my people. And, and at first, I felt badly about it. Like, why am I not making friends or the people I'm meeting, you know, aren't my people. And then over time, I found, you know, there are my people. You just have to find them and kind of balance. Some of them are also, <laughs> you know, have kids who are friends. So I'd, I'd love for you to comment kind of on how you can supercharge that initial part of friendship. How do you get things going? Social lives for those with young kids are really weird. You know, I mean, you do have these friendships of convenience. And I know as a social psychologist that probably the biggest predictor of whether or not two people are going to be friends is not how similar their personalities are or other kinds of psychological factors. It's how much they see one another, how close they live to one another. And so for most parents, their lives are just totally wrapped up in their kids for those first several years, but especially the first few years as you're adapting to parenthood. And so it makes sense, you know, if you're going to be forming new friends, they're going to be with those people. How do you supercharge it? I mean, I guess my advice would be try to engage with as many of those parents as you can when you're, you know, a drop off, if your kid's in daycare, preschool, you know, if there's some kid birthday party that you go to interact, you know, try to get to know some of the parents and then be choosy. I think there's an inclination. You're so starved for adult human connection outside of your spouse that you might jump into something wanting to be friends with somebody when, you know, if you'd met them at a party three years ago, you would have thought that was a pleasant conversation, but you know, I don't necessarily need to see that person again. So, you know, just like at any other point in your life, you're going to have access to a lot of people who might be potential friends. You just need to have that pool, you know, approaching as large as it was before, just rather than going out to bars or hanging out with friends at parties in college, you're hanging out at kids' birthday parties. Right. Yeah, it's a different hangout. And I think as parents, especially new parents, we can get in ruts, uh, any of us, and so I've also found, you know, reach out and reach out multiple times, you know, just because someone doesn't reply once, you know, there's going to be a time when you're not going to reply once and you're going to really be grateful if they keep reaching out to you and, and force yourself to do things that are social. You know, I think an inclination of new parents, and, and this was just exacerbated by the pandemic is to just hunker down. And that's what you don't want to do when you have young kids. You want to maintain those social networks that are so important to rely on, not in terms of in times of need, but also just to rely on for social connection. And I think it's a pretty common mistake 
that a lot of parents of young kids make in not, you know, making that extra effort, which is hard when you're totally exhausted and sleep deprived. But I've seen through personal experience and also research just how important those relationships are in the early lives of your kid. You know, what a lot of people don't know is that when you have a kid, it's kind of the beginning of a long decline in marital satisfaction. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is a very stressful time for parents and just as humans. And so anytime we have stressors like that, it can really negatively impact our relationships. And so it's also really, really important for new parents, new dads to really try to have some fun with your spouse and do things where you go out just together or you carry the kid with you in the car carrier or whatever, and keep that connection strong. The people that I've known that are happiest in that adjustment to parenthood are still doing that. I'm impressed. There's a colleague I have in my department at UGA who he studies parenting in young childhood. And I've been impressed three months, four months in after he had his kid, you know, we're playing tennis once a week and his wife is still riding her horse. You know, they're really they're able to navigate that really well and take turns watching the kid so that they can have their own social lives. They can maintain that. But then they're also going out together with the kid and just bringing the kid along. So that's really, really important. That's fantastic because, you know, as we started the conversation with COVID and the effect on relationships, well, for a lot of people that's now over, now we're in a different stage. So we're back to, hey, I've got this stressful <laughs> and beautiful relationship. I think you've done research on it, showing the links between how satisfied people are in their marriage and how physically healthy they are over time. Absolutely, yeah. You got that from your website. And you don't know why that is. Yeah, we don't. I mean, we know what some of the psychological factors that explain it are, but we have really very little idea biologically why it's the case. You know, one of the most replicated findings, certainly in psychology and medicine, is that the more socially connected people are, the longer they live. And it's a big effect, like bigger than the, the negative effects of smoking, bigger than exercise. It's huge. Julianne Holt-Lundstedt, Young University, who I'm collaborating with on a really fun project right now, looking at uh, events that are hosted on the site, Eventbrite, that puts on a lot of different kinds of events, concerts, but also things like wine tastings and things like that. We're trying to figure out what kinds of aspects of events that they're hosting are promoting of social connection. But she really made a name for herself in this kind of research where she looked at, you know, social relationships and mortality. And we find that, you know, when you look at different kinds of relationships, basically the the higher quality relationships are associated with better health. The higher quality parent-child relationships are associated with better health and health-related biology. But there's really a lot to learn about that. And so that was actually a little bit frustrating to me as a researcher, that it was so difficult. And it's very, very expensive to do that kind of research when you're looking at biomarkers and, and things like that. And in part because of the pandemic, but also a natural shift in my research, because I've been kind of getting back to my roots as a social psychologist and really focusing on more broadly than how relationships impact health, how they impact well-being. Why do they make us happy? And that's been pretty fun. That's awesome. What I'd love to chat about a little bit more on the marriage front is couples with couple friends. Yeah. Because I think that's another thing that can be lost. And I think you've done some some studies on that. I have, yeah. I'm one of the few people that's actually done research in that area. 
And now I see why, because it's really hard to do this kind of research. It's hard enough to get couples in the lab, but getting two couples in the lab at the same time presents some logistical and recruitment difficulties. But yeah, this was work that I started quite a while ago, actually. It was the first project I did on couple friends was for my dissertation back at the University of Texas. And it was driven by, well, partly personal experience. My wife and I had really benefited from having close friends together uh, with other people. And also in digging in the literature, there seemed to be a real gap. There were a lot of correlational findings where it showed that people who have couples who have a larger number of shared friends with their spouse tended to be happier. But there's a directionality issue here where it could be actually that people who are happier in their relationships are just seeking out more couple friends. And so I wanted to do, as an experimental social psychologist, I wanted to do a lab experiment where we actually created a friendship in the lab. And so we have this great paradigm tool that we use that's called the Fast Friends. And this is actually, a lot of people are familiar with it, not the name of it, but the actual thing itself, because it was the basis for this New York Times article several years ago called 36 Questions to Fall in Love. And so I encourage you and your listeners to, to Google that and check it out. But it was basically something developed so that in the lab over the course of 45 minutes, you could create some semblance of a friendship. And so it's based on people asking each other questions that are pre-formatted to kind of build relationships like so starting with questions like you know if there was any person dead or alive that you could have as a dinner guest who would it be what's your favorite childhood memory and then asking increasingly disclosing questions kind of you know really condensing a process that usually unfolds over weeks or months into 45 minutes and so we use this it's been used to create friendships between individuals and just see how the friendship formation process unfolds but we, I thought it'd be great for forming couple friendships. And so we brought pairs of couples in, had them go through this fast friends thing. And we followed up with couples a month later, and at least a third of them actually became friends in real life with the other couple, which is a pretty high number considering, you know, all the couples you might meet at parties and things like that. It's not a third of them necessarily that I want to become friends with. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. Did you ask the same questions as to the couples as you would to an individual? We did, yeah. We didn't want to make it too focused on the relationship. We didn't want to deviate too much. Of course, people talked about their relationship, you know, like when things like what's your, you know, best recent memory that would often involve uh, people's partners. But it was more like how, you know, you might, because if you're on a double date with another couple, you're probably not talking about your relationship that much, right? You're talking about a, a ton of things. You know, you're talking about yourself and you might talk about your partner, but it'd be like, oh, my wife did this cool thing you know, last week or whatever. So what we found in addition to, you know, really being able to kind of create couple friendships, we found evidence for this causal direction of couple friendships positively impacting people's relationships. After immediately following this this double date with another couple, people felt better about their own relationship. Later studies that we conducted found that people felt more passionately in love with their partner. And, and passion's a really hard thing to boost in relationships. And we know that one of the things that does that are novel and exciting activities for couples to do. And so this one might be just kind of a novel thing that they did. But the explanation for it was in part how responsive the other couple was to you and your partner. So, you know, if we're having this group interaction and 
you feel like the other couple's really listening to you. They're really interested. They really get where you're coming from. You're more likely to feel good about your own partner. So it's kind of, it's sort of looking to other people for cues about your relationship. You see that they seem to be having a good time with you and therefore, wow, I must be in a good relationship. That makes me feel better about my own partner because other people like us together. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was fun to do that research. Not easy, but yeah, I really liked it and I think it has a lot of real-world implications. For sure. You know, that really also goes back to what you're saying about be proactive again because you know, I feel like I I have a fair number of friends and friendships and couples and couples friends, but gosh, it is so hard sometimes just to get anyone out on a double date. Yeah. Do you all use babysitters? Yep. Yeah, we have babysitters. But, you know, some of us, their babysitters are their parents who, you know, can babysit from five to seven or, you know, there's always different restrictions. You have to be flexible, right? That was a game changer for my wife and me when our kids were able to be on their own. We spent a sabbatical in Switzerland from 2015 to 16, and my oldest son had just turned 12. And so it was a very safe, small little Swiss village. And so we were able to leave the kids by themselves for for a couple of hours, you know, to go out to dinner and stuff. And it was just awesome. You know, I mean, we're very close with our kids, but it's, you know, it's stressful to find babysitters and it's, you know, it's difficult and, you know, costs money and and things like that. And so when we moved to Athens, we moved to actually a very central location right next to downtown so that it's easy for all of us to really get out there and be social and have these kinds of everyday informal interactions that were lost during the pandemic. You know, there's there's been some interesting research showing that interacting with strangers is actually really beneficial for your happiness. You know, talking to a bartender, just chatting with people randomly, you know, that that you see out. And so that's been really fun for both us and our kids to just be able to kind of do that. And for my wife and me to have the flexibility for, you know, after we go out to dinner now, you know, now that our kids are older, you know, and, and we see the Georgia theater is, has some band playing and it sounds fun just to go in there and do it, you know? So you're right. It's, it involves more planning and, and you have to be flexible, but there are ways to do it too. You know, I mean, we definitely tried as best that we could during those babysitting years to, to do it at least a couple times a month. Yeah, you know, and you also brought up an interesting topic there of that it is really beneficial for us to be talking to a bartender or having the sort of random interactions, which we didn't get as much. And by the same token, we have kids, most of us on this podcast, you know, who are, who are listening, young kids, and they're in that same boat, you know. And so I think it's important, even if you're not feeling like you want to go out, you know, if safety is not the issue in, in your head, then. I think it's beneficial to get your kids out there, go to the park, get them interacting and might push you out of your comfort zone, might push them out of their comfort zone. But for them especially, it's it's so important. Yeah. I mean, everything out there suggests, all the research out there suggests that it's a really good idea to do that. You know, when people are depressed, the last thing that they often want to do is go out and socialize. So it's ironic that one of the best things to alleviate depression is going out and being social. You get back home and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm actually glad I did that. You know, it was hard to, to kind of get out there and I'm glad to be home, but it was good. You know, and I, and I think now that people are, now that we're coming out of the pandemic and people are readjusting to socialize, some people are a little bit skittish, not even necessarily because of health concerns, but just because they're just not used to doing that anymore. You know, they've gotten into their routines watching Netflix or whatever. But it, it is so, so important to do that. And also, you know, we talked about 
double dates, but it's also really important to maintain those friendships that you have outside of the relationship. And so it's in, in a lot of ways easier to do that if both you and your partner are on the same page about that. You know, if both of you have a desire to do that, to trade off, you know, I'll watch, I'll be with the kids tonight. You know, you go out with your friends. There's another thing I want to do later this week, poker game or something that I want to, you know, be with my friends. And so that's, there's a lot of negotiating that happens, which isn't always easy, but it's, it's really important to do that. Totally agree. Totally agree. I mean, it's just part of the balance of life. And, you know, before we had kids. Yeah. It's all about balance. Yeah. I mean, if there's one thing that I've strived for as a parent, it is, it's having that balance. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there are times when certain things will tug more and you'll need to give them more attention, but we're all, we're all on this journey together and, um, you know, doing the best we can. Yeah. And there are certainly plenty of, you know, I, I've been talking a lot sort of about the selfish needs and I, I don't use that term as a value laden one, but just literally about the self that we have as parents. But you're also having a balance to want to spend quality time with your kids. Like there are plenty of times where I've wanted to go and I have gone to, you know, my kid's soccer game and had foregone some, some other social opportunity that might've been really fun, but you know, we want to be with our kids and, and watch them grow up. And also, I think part of this balance is modeling for the kids, you know, how you can have a life of balance. Well, thank you, Rich, for joining us here. This has been an incredible talk. I'm really excited to listen again. You can find Rich's work at richslatcher.com, R-I-C-H-S-L-A-T-C-H-E-R.com. And I'll put that in the show notes. But again, Rich, thank you very much. It's good having you. Thanks for having me, Will. Uh, I really enjoyed it. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you haven't joined us yet, go to adadspath.com to get our free newsletter exclusively for dads. And do you know a friend who might like this podcast? Send it on. We want to help as many dads as possible make fatherhood count. Dad on. Dad on.